We currently have 40 to 50 trials that are ongoing in our ecosystem. And for a rare disease like ours, to have 50 trials ongoing all over the world is really exciting. That means 50 shots on goal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Investigational clinical trials play a pivotal role in making ALS a livable disease and ultimately finding ways to cure the disease. To that end, the ALS Association recently began accepting research proposals in its Clinical Trial Awards Program. And that program funds early to mid-phase clinical trials. And it is just one of several aspects of the ALS Association's research program. It's a concept we talk about often on this show and in our community, the need to expand access to clinical trials, the need for more clinical trials, the challenges of conducting clinical trials during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this week, we are taking a deeper look into clinical trials, how they are built and run, who determines participation criteria, and what is being done to create more trials at more sites that include more participants. In order to do so, I turned this week to Dr. Kuldeep Dave, Vice President of Research at the ALS Association. Dr. Dave, thanks as always for being with us here on Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the ALS Association announced the recipients of the Clinical Trials Awards Program. I thought it'd be a good opportunity to kind of sit down and, and kind of take a step back. We, we talk about clinical trials all the time. I feel like people have a general sense of what a clinical trial is and how it works, but I kind of want to get in the weeds a little bit. So let's just start at that basic definition. How is a textbook clinical trial developed? What are the basic building blocks to help us think about a clinical trial from beginning to end? Thanks, Jeremy. First of all, I think we should make a distinction between interventional clinical trials which is what you're talking about today. Uh, But there are also research studies or observational clinical trials, uh, which might be looking at natural history of the disease or maybe measuring a particular response in the body, measuring any kind of biomarkers without any therapy present. So coming back to the interventional trials, a clinical trial is essentially an experiment. You're doing an experiment to ask for basic questions. Is the therapy safe? How well does it work? Which dose works the best? And what, if any, are the side effects? So the basic building blocks of a clinical trial are really three. The first is the drug itself, the investigational therapy that you're trying to test. Second is the clinical trial sites and personnel. So, you know, this is where clinical trials happen. These are generally clinics, hospitals, and the personnel, such as the site PIs and trial coordinators, sponsor, people that are involved in actually doing the trial. And the third and the most important is participation of people with ALS. Yeah, and I want to dig into that participation of, of people with ALS in a moment. But you mentioned some of the, those two big questions, that, that about the safety and the efficacy of the therapy, about the drug that's being tested. How do you answer those questions around safety and efficacy? 
So the way the system is set up, there are three phases of clinical trials. And I, I think most people are used to knowing about the three phases, but I'll go into a little bit more detail about what each of them are. So phase one is designed to test if the drug is safe to give to people. It can be done with people without the disease, or it could be done in people who have ALS. Generally, these are very small studies, 20, maybe 20 to 40 participants, maybe 20 to 50 at the most participants. And generally it happens at maybe two or three trial sites. And in this case, what you do is you generally test a single dose of the therapy. And if that's safe, then you follow it up with multiple doses of the therapy to look to make sure that it's safe. So in phase one, you're essentially determining safety, but you could also be looking at whether the drug engages the target. So for example, if a drug works through target X, then you may want to look if target X is activated, for example. So you may be looking at biomarker changes. You may also be doing PK or pharmacokinetic studies in phase one. And that just means pharmacokinetics is just a big word for saying, where does the drug go once it's given? Does it get to the brain or the spinal cord, which is you know especially important for ALS? There's then a phase two, Jeremy, and that is generally somewhere between 50 and 100 people. And this is where you start to look at the first hint of efficacy. Does the drug work? You also look for longer term safety. You could do dose finding studies. Dose finding studies means what's the right dose that's going to work, that's going to give you efficacy. And you may be looking at biomarker changes again in this type of a phase because you may be trying to correlate what's happening in the clinical changes you're seeing to maybe what's happening physiologically. So that's phase two. And finally, there is phase three, and this is where it gets time-consuming, expensive, and these are very large trials, 200 to 600 people. Here you are looking for efficacy in a much larger and hopefully more heterogeneous population. You're also looking, again, for long-term safety. And in this stage, if the drug is safe and shows efficacy in phase three, the sponsor, most of the time, that's the drug company, will take it to the FDA to get it approved. As I said earlier, because these are larger trials, they are expensive, but they also give you a high power and it allows us to avoid falsely concluding that the drug works. So those are, Jeremy, the three phases of how you answer questions about safety and efficacy. By the way, you should know the ALS Association, I think, yes, which you alluded to up front, has a grant funding mechanism that we call Clinical Trial Awards Program, and it supports early stage, phase one, early phase two type clinical trials. Last year, as you said, we funded four trials out of this program, and the intent really was that if these are successful trials, they'll move to the next phase, and so we can increase the number of trials in our ecosystem by the way, we just launched that same program this morning today. Exciting news. Yeah, we'll look forward to learning about the investigational trials that are funded through that program later in the year. 
thinking about that, thinking about the, the the research projects that will apply for funding through that program or any other program, it just makes me wonder how is the decision made to initiate the clinical trial? Who, for, So in other words, who decides which potential therapies are good candidates to start this process of a clinical trial? Yeah, so to answer this question, you have to go a little backwards. <laughs> so before you get to a clinical trial, you need to develop drugs in the preclinical phase. And so preclinical is everything before the clinic. And so this is where you develop the therapy on a lab bench, test it in cells or animal models. You show that it is safe in animal testing and you formulate it so that it can be given to people. All of this happens preclinically or in the preclinical phase. And you gather all of that safety, efficacy data, and then you go to the FDA the Food and Drug Administration, who reviews the entire preclinical package and provides approval for testing in humans. So really FDA's decision to grant you an IND or investigational new drug approval is the first thing that needs to happen for you to test in humans. Now, even if the drug is given a thumbs up by the FDA, the pharmaceutical company or the academic lab that's developing that drug has to make another decision, which is, is the candidate they have in hand, is that the right candidate? You know, based on how the drug works in animal models, what the mechanism of it is, what is it targeting in the body, or sometimes even funding. Do they have the necessary funding to conduct expensive clinical trials that can run you in uh, millions of dollars. So here too, Jeremy, the ALS Association has set up a research program. We call it the Barnett Grant Funding Program, and it supports preclinical drug development. It provides funding for this kind of drug testing so that we can help drug get the data and then push them into clinical testing. And we like to call this de-risking strategy. Over the last five years, through this Barnett grant program, we have funded over 30 different drug development projects, and many of those have now either entered or are just about to enter clinical testing. Yeah, and we will share a link in the show notes so folks can read more about the most recent uh, group of preclinical trials that were funded through that Barnett program. Very exciting to learn about that as well. We've talked in recent months, Dr. Dave, about trials that have met their endpoints, or maybe they didn't meet their endpoint. What is an endpoint? Who determines what that endpoint is? Well, remember I told you clinical trials are experiments. Albeit on a large scale, they're not on a lab bench, but they're experiments. And what we're basically testing is therapies in the clinic and they're called experimental therapies. An endpoint is just something that you are going to measure. It's how a patient feels, functions, or survives. That's the endpoint. How a patient feels, functions, or survives. So I'll give you a very simple sort of example here. If you're testing whether eating fast food every day for lunch will increase your risk of getting heart disease, 
then measuring blood pressure would be one of the endpoints or measuring body weight could be another endpoint. Now, not all endpoints are made the same. So you have three types of endpoints in clinical trial. First one is called a primary endpoint. And a primary endpoint is essentially a measure that is the most important in evaluating the effect of a treatment. And primary endpoints can be different in different phases. For example, in phase one, since you're looking for safety, your safety is your primary endpoint. But in phase two, since you're looking for efficacy, efficacy or how a patient rates on an ALSFRSR scale becomes a primary endpoint. There are two additional types of endpoints used in trials in addition to primary endpoint. Second one is called a secondary endpoint. And that is a measure that is not as important as the primary endpoint, but still of clinical interest. So, you know, taking back to that example of fast food, in the fast food example, you would say blood pressure could be the primary endpoint, but cholesterol levels could be the secondary endpoint. In ALS, for example, in most trials, you'll see ALS FRSR rating scale is used in most clinical trials as the primary endpoint. But then there are trials that will look at forced vital capacity, which measures lung function. And that could be a secondary endpoint. And of course, beyond the primary and secondary, there are what we call exploratory endpoints where you explore sort of new hypotheses or you may be looking for changes in biomarkers. I want to cycle back to something that you mentioned earlier in our discussion today, uh, and that is the people with ALS is one of those kind of key components of a clinical trial. That's the trial participants. Who's eligible to participate in a clinical trial, and, and how are those determines around eligibility made? The most simple answer there is that we would hope that everyone who wants to participate in a clinical trial is eligible for a clinical trial. However, clinical trials are experiments. I'm going to keep saying this over and over. And, and they're testing whether a therapy works. It's important to know that clinical trials themselves are not treatments. Uh, we know that because there are there is a more than 95% failure rate of drugs going through the three clinical phases. I think we're getting better each day, but you know, that's the failure rate we have. And these trials are very expensive and very time consuming. So sponsors or drug companies and clinical trialists, what they'll do is they'll end up selecting participants that are going to allow them to test the therapy and give them answers. So that even if the drug trial fails, it provides information to guide future trials. So what you end up with in every trial is an inclusion and exclusion criteria. And these are basically guiding principles for that trial to either include someone as a participant or exclude someone from participating. And I'll give you an example uh, on this one. Let's say you are a drug company that is making a drug that improves lung function. Well, for you to assess that, you would need patients who have abnormal lung function. Otherwise, how would you know that they're improving lung function if it is normal? Let's say there is a person with ALS that has significantly impacted their hands and feet. The disease has 
but their lungs are spared and are working fine. In that case, that person is probably not the right person to be included because there's nothing to improve upon or nothing to reverse. So that's where the inclusion exclusion criteria come in. Another example could be a genetic therapy, for example. So if you have a gene therapy that works against SOD1 gene, one of the genes that we know is linked to the disease. And if you're making an antisense therapy that corrects the gene, and that's how it works, it would be of no value to have people that don't have SOD1 mutations in that trial. Because if the drug works through correcting SOD1 gene, then that person needs to have a SOD1 gene mutation. Otherwise, the therapy is not going to work. I have to say, Jeremy, the trials are getting more and more inclusive. We know the Healy platform trial that the LS Association has funded has fairly wide inclusion criteria. And in fact, that has resulted in them recruiting three times faster than normal trials would. You talk about things like the Healy platform trial and the fact that trials are becoming more inclusive. What else is being done to increase the opportunities for people with ALS to participate in clinical trials? Well, our goal at the ALS Association is to have more trials and not just have more trials, but make trials better, faster, and to do them well so that we can learn from them. Remember what I said about the building blocks of clinical trials, three of them, the experimental therapies, the trial site infrastructure, and people with ALS. And what we are doing is we are systematically stimulating each of those building blocks. So for the first one, experimental therapies, we're funding preclinical drug development program, the Barnett program, as I said earlier, and the clinical trial awards program. This is how we can keep the ALS pipeline robust and full of new drugs. The second building block, the trial sites and infrastructure, there we are just a month or two away from launching our first ever clinical trial capacity funding program. And this is going to be really interesting because it's the first time we're trying it, Jeremy. And it's to fund either care clinics to become clinical trial sites or for existing trial sites to expand their capacity. And the third building block here is, you know, more experimental therapies, more trials, more trial sites means we need more people with ALS participating and engaging in this process. And we, again, here too, we're, we're coming at it in a couple of ways. One, we want to make sure that people get diagnosed early. Remember I told you about inclusion criteria earlier. The, a lot of times, if people are so f- progressed in their disease that they may not qualify to be included in a trial. And so the earlier the diagnosis, the better it would be for them to be able to participate. And so we have launched a Think ALS tool to socialize with physicians and neurologists across the country so that signs and symptoms of ALS are identified earlier. And so people can be referred to ALS clinics. And so they can be in a clinical trial earlier. More people for trials can also be identified through genetic testing and counseling. Remember, I talked about gene therapies earlier. If people know their genetic status, if they know if they have an SOD1 gene or a C9 
mutation or an UNC13A mutation uh, or a FUS mutation, it will allow us to connect those people with those gene mutations to the relevant gene therapies that are being tested. And finally, things like the Healy trial is an example of increasing opportunity. Here's a platform trial that is allowing testing of multiple therapies at once with a shared placebo group, saving on time, money, leveraging shared infrastructure. We have to think of these types of innovative approaches to increase opportunities for people with ALS to participate. Well, a lot of interesting work going on in the world of clinical trials, Dr. Dave. Before I let you get back to the important work, do you have any closing thoughts for folks to take away as they think about how clinical trials are built, what we learn from them, and where this process moves going forward? Yeah, you know, what excites me is that we currently have 40 to 50 trials that are ongoing in our ecosystem. And for a rare disease like ours, to have 50 trials ongoing all over the world is really exciting. That means 50 shots on goal for something to be successful. And, you know, whether you think you would be included or excluded from a clinical trial, don't guess that. Raise your hand, participate. Even if you don't have ALS, There are studies where we need people without ALS, where we are looking at natural history or biomarkers so that we can have something to compare people with ALS to. And so, you know, engagement, participation is really important. And if there's anything that you take away from today is that the ecosystem is robust. It's thriving right now, 50 trials and you know, at least 100 different companies interested in ALS. Let's keep that going. Sounds good to me. Dr. Dave, thanks as always for your time. Thank you. I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. Kuldeep Dave. For more information on participating in clinical trials, go to als.org. We will also share resources in the show notes. If you like this week's episode, please share it with at least one friend. And find time to rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Our sound engineer this week was Alex Brower. Thank you, Alex. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. We will connect with you again soon. Bye.